This week, Faru Mavatuna from Netsparker joins us to talk about out uh, identifying rather out of band application vulnerabilities. I will do a technical segment on the security of the Netgear's Arlo camera system. And Don Pizet from IT Pro TV comes on to talk about creating encrypted backups on Amazon's S3. All that and more on this edition of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. by in control of cyber risk with tenable io the first vulnerability management platform built for today's elastic assets like cloud containers and web apps discover a fresh asset-based approach that prioritizes vulnerabilities while seamlessly integrating into your environment and improve roi with the first elastic licensing approach based on assets not ip addresses tenable io delivers the data and context you need to secure your elastic attack surface start your free tenable io trial today by visiting tenable.io Synapsis is the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business-critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at onapsis.com. The Threat Connect platform enables organizations to identify, manage, and block threats faster with threat intelligence, automation, and orchestration. Providing security teams a platform to unite their people, processes, and technologies behind an intelligence-driven defense. Threat Connect helps increase visibility into networks and integrates with defensive tools to close the gap between threat detection and response. Get your free Threat Connect account today by visiting threatconnect.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome, everyone, to Paul Security Weekly. I'm your host, Paul Asadori, and this is episode 506 for March 23rd, 2017. We're coming fresh off the heels of Secure World Boston. It's nice seeing everyone out there. We did, <clears throat> excuse me, a great, um, we had a lot of fun out there. We did a hacker trivia uh, game inside the booth for the first time. As many of you know, uh, really quick before we get to, to Farah, traditionally, we've sold Hack Naked t-shirts at conferences. And while that <clears throat> is a lot of fun, I wanted to do something different starting this year at conferences. It turns out asking people about hacker movie trivia is really fun too. Um, so we did that and we'll be producing, we'll be uh, publishing our videos that we cho uh, took out there on our YouTube channel. So you can check them out on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash security weekly TV. Um, we did <clears throat> some shenanigans in the vendor area. If our sponsors were there, we spent extra time uh, with our sponsors in the in the vendor area. So all in all, it was a lot of fun. Now, I do have a couple more quick announcements. Sorry, Farrell. Um, 
Actually, just one. Before we get started, speaking of conferences in Boston, the 10th anniversary edition of Source Boston is being held this April, including training sessions being held on April 24th through the 25th, and conference talks on the 26th through the 27th, featuring awesome speakers from the security community. Events will take place in Boston at the Courtyard Marriott downtown, and Security Weekly listeners receive a $100 off discount, either the training or conference passes, using the code SECURITYWEEKLY. Now, visit SourceConference.com very soon because um, the prices are going to go up. <coughs> Excuse me. Speaking with Rob Shane <coughs> at uh, uh, Secure World, because uh, we're in Boston. Rob's in Boston as well. The prices are going up. So we will be there <coughs> at Source Boston. I will be speaking about IoT security, and we will be interviewing people in the booth uh, doing hacker trivia. Now, what we're doing is we're picking different themes for conferences. This one was hacker movie trivia. And if you come to our booth and you play hacker movie trivia, we reach back out to the people who got the most questions right, and they're going to participate in a um, segment that we'll do on the show on hacker movies. So how cool is that? So you kind of compete for your chance to be on Security Weekly. And uh, so we'll pick a different theme for various conferences. I may stick with the same theme for Source Boston. I may switch it up a little bit because a lot of people that had attended heard me say the answers a lot uh, of the trivia game. So, <clears throat> Farrow, uh, you, do you want to play trivia or no? No, maybe. Do you like hacker movies? I've been saying that a lot over the past two days. Uh, oh, okay. That would explain why he didn't uh, respond to me and why he has a look of concern on his face right now because I can see that. Um, so, yeah, uh, so I don't know what the next theme will be for the, uh, trivia that we play at the booth. I also have, uh, other questions as well. I have questions on security philosophy, like your security philosophy. I have questions, um, about you as it relates to security. I've got security 20 questions, which is kind of interesting. And not many people, no one chose that because it involved a lot of thinking, um, which is interesting. And so some people were like, I really stink at hacker movie uh, trivia, but that I found makes it like way more fun because if they don't know the answers, I just, I keep giving hints to them until they get the answer. Um, sometimes I have to spell it out for them <laughs> and uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. So we will bring some of that footage uh, to the show uh, as well. And there is a hilarious video of me running around in the, the vendor area. I don't know if we can play that now or not. We, we can right now or not right now? Oh, okay, let's play that now. That's great, because then I don't have to fill that much more time, which is awesome, because I've just been filling time. I'm still filling time. Good morning, everyone. This is Paul Sedoin from Security Weekly. We're at Secure World Boston. Yeah, and there's lots of vendors here in the vendor area. We're having fun just outside the vendor area playing Hacker Trivia. It's been a lot of fun. This is day two. And now we're going to take you on the to a tour of the show floor. Takes a broom. What is this? It's supposed to squeeze it. Ridiculous. 
everyone I, I used to work here. You got a little klepto in you, huh? <laughs> Is this I spin and I win something? Alright, let's see what I win. You ready? Ah, it's really loud first thing in the morning. Good lord. Oh god, I gotta spin again now. I win Kaspersky Internet Security. Uh, we won the <laughs> hey, look, Kaspersky, I won the Starbucks card. Where is it? Welcome back, everyone. Um, we did <clears throat> a lot of that footage. For When I say first thing in the morning, I've been up since 4.30 this morning. And we filmed that at like, I don't know, 8 o'clock in the morning after we had breakfast. Funny story. We tried to order Bloody Marys at 7.30 in the morning. And we were told it was too early for Bloody Marys. It kind of it made me feel bad. It, but anyway, so we didn't get Bloody Marys this morning. Anyway. <laughs> we do have the fabulous Farrah Mavatuna here on the show with us from NetSparker. Farrah, welcome to back to Paul Security Weekly. Hey, Paul. Thanks a lot. It's nice to be back. <clears throat> yes, yeah, it's nice to have nice you. To have and you so what's interesting is um, we talked about this kind of out-of-band detection for web applications. I think the last time that you were on the show, we didn't get into a lot of detail. You kind of gave us a little clue that you might have a, a full-fledged uh, product on this. Um, so why don't you first, uh, at a high level, tell us about what NetSparker Hawk is uh, and why people need it. And I guess, for lack of a better term, what problem does it solve? I asked that of a lot of vendors today. <laughs> yeah, last time we talked, um, we were just building it. So it was in the process of building it and we launched it in between. So what it does, uh, it finds vulnerabilities in an out-of-band fashion. So what we discussed, and I don't want to discuss in details right now, but just briefly cover it. Some vulnerabilities requires you to do certain attacks and you may not get the responses. We are talking about web applications here just to give the context. So in web applications, when you do certain attacks, such as SQL injection or you know, various other attacks like code injection, commanding execution, that kind of problems, the response might not reflect the vulnerability all the time. So in a, in a simplest case, in SQL injection, you send a request and you get an error message. In a slightly more complicated case, uh, you might get a different response. So it's like a boiling kind of SQL injection. Even more complicated case, you might use something like response times, right? But it can be even more complicated, more harder to detect vulnerability where the vulnerability is happening in another environment, in another system, in another connected system, or happening in an async fashion. So, you know, you don't see any kind of output difference, not in time, not in code, no error messages whatsoever. So, however, the vulnerability is still there. So to detect these vulnerabilities, as a penetration tester or an actual attacker can actually use out-of-band detection methods, which means, you know, your normal way is finding them just looking at the response. So the out-of-band mean, in this case, just another channel. 
And one of the most reliable channels are using DNS. So you have a, DNA, a custom DNS server, and then you make, you use, you exploit the vulnerability in a way where the system, exploited system, resolves that particular DNS query, which you mentioned DNS server, so you know whether the attack actually worked or not. So you can confirm it by observing your DNS server. So out-of-band vulnerabilities is, you know, they're just normal vulnerabilities, but the only way to detect them are sometimes out-of-band ways. And this is what we built into NetSparker. So NetSparker Hawk is pretty much what we call the whole infrastructure to do this, which is a custom DNS server with, that we built. And then the NetSparker component, we talked with the DNS server, and obviously relevant attack payloads and all the process goes into the attack and detection phase uh, now, Sarah, and I, all the communication between these systems. <clears throat> I'm reminded of a uh, really fun example of something uh, along these lines. And I, re I forget the exact application. That, uh, maybe you can help me uh, fill in the blanks. Where I have like, let's say it's a greeting card or some kind of postcard, something in the physical world, right? And I write my uh, attack on it, right? Like maybe the title of the greeting card or whatever is like my SQL injection attack or my cross-site scripting attack. Then I have to like scan that in or give that or mail that somewhere, right? <laughs> that gets processed by a computer and maybe I get mailed something back, right? And somewhere in that process, my attack code is running. And my end result is like I have a physical wedding invitation now that has SQL injection or, or something ridiculous uh, on it, but somewhere in that process, right, they, uh, my code has been processed. Is that, am I, is that like a good example or just an okay example? No, that's, that's actually a very good example. And when you told that, I thought about like, you know, another thing kind of relevant. So think about the most popular, you know, what the most popular jokes about SQL injection that, you know, you you type your student name, your, your, your you know, mm -hmm. child name, register it to school as Bobby Drop Tables. Right. Uh, so actually, Bobby Drop Tables is a bad attack. Not that it's only dropping tables, but also you don't know whether the attack worked or not. Yes. You just don't know. So. Actually, instead of moving drop tables, you could have done a, you know, one could have done a much smarter attack and resolve a DNS something like bobby.attacker.com. And then you can put it in anywhere. It can be the name, it can be a postcard, it can be a license plate. And if it's got executed, you actually will be informed and the information will include where did it get executed, which country, which IP address effectively, right? And when, obviously, at the time. Mm -hmm. So you can actually put a real blind payload, and this can be cross-site scripting, this can be SQL injection, it works you know, with various attacks. Mm -hmm. And then one day you can receive an email or you know, get a report that says, okay, your attack just got executed. And I think that would be cool. Like, as you said, just put your payload to postcards and just sit and wait. So, Farrell, what's in each case of cross-site scripting and SQL injection? What, like, how are you triggering the DNS lookup? Like, I'm sure, like, lots of different software works differently. Like, how do you know where the DNS lookup is going to take place? Right, actually, where you don't know. I mean, what we do, for example, if SQL injection, you make your attacks, 
according to the backend, if you know the backend database, or for all the databases that, that you know of. And then if the SQL query goes into one of those databases and gets executed, then you know. Cross-site scripting, though, is kind of a different beast, and much cooler, actually. What is cool about cross-site scripting? You made a cross-site scripting attack, and let's, let's explain a, an actual real-world case. So imagine, we can say simple, simple example, like pick WordPress, very common example. So there is a cross-site scripting in WordPress admin backend. So you do the injection from the front end, mm -hmm. but for cross-site scripting to get executed, someone need to need to actually load that backend page, which is obviously most likely either an editor or an administrator, so someone got the right privileges. So once they see the page, this is kind of interesting because in SQL injection and varies pretty much all other attack vectors, what happens is DNS will be resolved by one of the servers. You know, one of the servers in the infrastructure that you are attacking. But in cross-site scripting, as the cross-site scripting itself, the attack is about the clients, not the server. So in this particular case, when you put your cross-site scripting, it's just sitting in the backend of WordPress. And when administrator logged in and maybe looking at a command or you know, whatever, however the injection is made, maybe the, the log report, whatever, then they the cross-site scripting gets executed. And when it's got executed, it simply makes a DNS query. You know, obviously it's not a like JavaScript doesn't have a resolve this DNS kind of thing, but we are talking about it tries to make a request to a your domain name, and obviously domain gets resolved first, which then you get informed. Right. So you, if your cross-site scripting is even an image tag in a domain, <laughs> when it loads that image, it could be a completely transparent image. It would trigger the DNS uh, request. <clears throat> Correct. That's exactly correct, especially in web browser context. I mean, resolving to a DNS is extremely simple. You know, right. in certain attacks, it gets complicated. For example, MySQL is, you know, one of those that in Linux environment, if the backend is MySQL, then there is no known way to make a DNS query. That's, you know, for example, one of the limitations. Yeah, because like there's, like, um, there's like shell commands in MySQL, uh, MySQL but they're... Are they turned off by default today? I think a lot of I think MySQL turns off those shell commands by default. Is that true? Uh, the, what you need, you need privileges, yeah. and majority of the time you don't have privileges. If you have privileges, then yeah, it's very dangerous. Then you got I, I'm not quite sure whether you got immediate shell. I can't recall any function directly like that, but you can mm. definitely load custom modules to get the shell if right. you got the admin rights. Mm. But you know, if if you are dealing with half-decent application, you won't connect to MySQL as a root, so you got limited privileges. That mm -hmm. means you won't be able to get code execution, but you will get just SQL injection and ability to extract data or modify data. Right. Yeah, so it's, I mean, because you can't uh, SQL injection, depending on the database, executing a ping command that would cause a DNS lookup, I'm sure is pretty dicey, so... You probably have a bunch of different payloads for all of those different databases to do that. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, we try to find out, okay, this database, this operating system, what works? In mm -hmm. most of the databases, operating system independent, it works. MySQL is the only one. There is no straightforward way to do this. Mm -hmm. However, in Windows, which I was going to touch, uh, Windows is kind of nice 
from an attacker point of view because you got the UNC share option where anything can be doing a DNS query. Because oh, if right. it works with any kind of URL format, mm -hmm. then it will accept UNC shares, and UNC shares will resolve DNS. And right. as you know, UNC shares is root cause of, I don't know, countless of attacks that we have seen before. It's right. just such a bad design. I understand <laughs> practical. So yeah. it's from it was made to be of, easy, so I can just do backslash, backslash, like whatever, and it'll just go find it. But in that go finding it, obviously, uh, it does a DNS lookup. That's it. I mean, if you remember, like, really big attacks, like one of them was, um, so I can't remember the exact name of the attack, but where you can load an extension and load your custom DLL from a completely different server. So that would be like you send the MP3 file over the web, mm -hmm. and then when that MP3 file loaded from your UNC shave, then Vinayamp or whatever the player uh, will load your DLL with it, which sits on the director of your, you know, attacker's UNC shape. And bam, you got DLL injection and code execution. You know, this was this was a big deal. And Metasploit got various modules for it at the moment. There are like so many similar attacks I can think of that's being successfully exploited just because UNC shape is a thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <clears throat> no, that's great. So uh, going back to your WordPress example, I think that's a, a great example as WordPress is always in the press with some kind of vulnerability. I think <clears throat> in their defense, they have gotten better in providing uh, more updates and making updates easier for both the WordPress engine itself and plugins. That's not to say that people still are reluctant to be proactive in patching their WordPress because I think the level of user is pretty low. They're like, I don't know, I just use it to like make a website. I don't know about what this update thing is. Um, <clears throat> but waiting for someone to log into the admin interface is something that could very easily Farrell, fall out of scope in a web application penetration test. Now, do you see the scopes being uh, relaxed and the timeframes going? Or do you see more people uh, in organizations realizing that this is a, a, an attack vector in searching for tools? I'd imagine you see uh, being in the business, right? Seeing people searching uh, for tools. Yeah, you know, the scope discussion is kind of an ongoing joke almost, you know, between pen testers, actual attackers, and bug bounty hunters, whomever you call. Mm -hmm. So I think you agree, but to be honest, there are so many companies, they would even consider any kind of exploitation out of scope. So which boils down to, uh, in network, I kind of do understand because unless you're in an environment that you can break, so it's not production, Network exploitation is dangerous, quite dangerous, so you can mess it up quite easily. Right. Web application is not like that. If you know, if you know what you're doing, you're not going to break anything on production while exploiting stuff. So the point being, um, you're right. I think majority of the companies will say that's out of scope. It's almost social engineering and all of the bits. But you know, it's it's a real attack vector, and we know, for example, Apache organization, Apache Foundation, got hacked from an XSS vulnerability just like that. And, you know, they didn't call it out of scope or, you know, we got hacked, but it was out of scope. You know, how did that happen? You know, you can't do that. You got hacked, you got hacked. So it's it's an attack surface, whether you put it in your scope or not. <clears throat> right. Um, <clears throat> so um, what, um, what are some of the other examples... 
of vulnerability, <coughs> excuse me, vulnerabilities that you're finding <coughs> using the uh, uh, Nesparker Hawk. Right. Uh, we got cross-site scripting for sure, then SQL injection and remote code executions and code evaluation. Code evaluation, what we refer as like if you are if you're able to inject a piece of code such as PHP, ASP, you know, Ruby, whatever, you know, when you evaluate an actual code. And then the code injection where you actually execute code on the operating system level, shell level. And then uh, external um, XML. External entity attacks, that's another cool event. So, you know, you got your XML parser actually trying to resolve an entity. And again, you can have it blindly. So that parser, in majority of the cases, actually, XML ex external entity is a really good attack to prove, to show, you know, kind of a, a really showcase for this out-of-band detection. Because majority of the cases, parsers work in the back, at the back end, and also, it's quite common. They work as a bulk operation, not necessarily on real time. So in all those cases, when you have a successful payload, you won't immediately get the results. It will get executed somewhere else. It will get executed in a different thread that you won't be able to see the results. Hence, again, resolving DNS to figure out whether the attack got successful today, tonight, or whatever is a really good example for that. Mm. So when you say code injection, is that uh, local include, remote file include, or some other kind of vector that, that's triggering that? Both, I mean, remote file inclusion can lead to code injection, right? Generally, remote file inclusion is immediate execution of the whatever the web server is, so you know, whatever the framework is supported. Right. So for example, majority of the cases, you will see remote file inclusion in PHP. And in PHP, the immediate attack would be running PHP code, which can do this. And the second thing you might try, do I have shell access if I saw, you know, what, what kind of permissions? And the code injection would be uh, more in terms of, imagine that, sorry, code execution would be, imagine that you developed a tool, a web application tool, which says, okay, ping, blah, blah, right? So you type your domain and it pings it and it shows you the output on the website. And obviously, it's okay. You know, it, you can immediately inject your code into the shell, like by using pipes or various other splitters that can, you know, trigger code execution. Actually, something I haven't mentioned, and I think it's it's huge while we're discussing whole mm -hmm. uh, where out of band detection can come handy, which is server side request forgery issues. So, to, to simply say, the server side request forgery is. Um, let's say you have a uh, you have a website that takes screenshots of the given URL. Okay, so normally people say it's okay, you know, www.google.com, and you get a screenshot of google.com. It's such a nice service. That's what you have. And a common vulnerability in here: what if if I don't say google.com, what if I type localhost? So it will make a request to localhost from localhost. And then give you, give you a screenshot. And then, obviously, you can say, okay, what if I do, you know, 192.168.01, what do I get? Mm -hmm. So you can move it from there. And this is like very basic, you know, server-side request forgery attack. But majority of the server-side request forgery attacks actually happens in the server without any 
any image kind of output. And again, DNS comes extremely handy in here, whether your immediate attack works or not. And then you can you can try further things. You can even uh, try to connect arbitrary ports. For example, can I make a request with my SQL server on the same on the same server? So there are various other attacks around that. And I think one important thing to mention about server-side request forgeries as well is abuse of relationship, abuse of trust. So a very simple example, you build a web application and you said, from debugging your environment, you said, well, if I am localhost, if localhost visiting, if the remote IP address is you know 127001, then show me the debug information, right? It's very common. And it's actually built in in lots of systems, like ASP.NET, that's your default configuration. If you are localhost, you will see the details of error messages. If you are remote, you won't. So if you got server-side request forgery, and if the website makes requests on your behalf, when you make a request to the localhost, obviously the request coming from the localhost, so it's trusted, even though an attacker triggered it. So that's the trust of, you know, abuse of trust in that context. So if any system trusts that IP address by making requests from that IP address, you can abuse that relationship to, you know, elevate your privileges or access mm -hmm. a data that you wouldn't able to. Oh, that's really cool. Um, in, in that process, um, what are some of the, um, like, reliability issues? In other words... What if inside this environment, yeah, the attack is possible, but they're somehow uh, blocking DNS in, in some way, shape, or fashion, or detecting that this is happening through some kind of egress filtering? Right, right. It's actually, you know, if you think about there are various ways you can detect out of band. And the reason we chose, and it's quite common in, in you know, uh, among pen testers and attackers and everyone else, um, we chose DNS because it's the least filtered um, network traffic. You know, it, it's very rare you see proper regress filtering over DNS. However, it can happen. What we do, uh, you got two options. Uh, one, you can have our DNS server, and you can use it, which is the default option. The other option is they're also deploying a Docker image of that private DNS server, which you can deploy into your own environment. So if you are doing testing, but if you know you have a complete, you have a completely isolated environment, even a DNS query will not make out, then you can use that option. But if you are talking about the real world where you have a network, and sorry, the target has a network, you're trying to exploit, but they have really aggressive, aggressive filtering, nothing gets out. Then, to be honest, it's very unlikely you will find any, any vulnerabilities that requires out-of-band detection. Or you might go for some tricky options, depending on the application you are testing. Something like, if this works, write an HTML file to this public directory, and then you have to go manually and check that now and then to see whether it got executed and you got that public directory written there. <clears throat> but, you know, in our experience, in my personal experience, it's extremely rare to see DNS is isolated unless you are in a restricted network. So mm -hmm. if you are doing government, military, that kind of thing, yeah, you will have air gap and nothing will go out anyway, not DNS, nothing. And then if you, if you still want this, uh, and if you have an option generally you won't have, then you need a private DNS server to detect it. And if you don't have, 
you don't have many options. It's, it gets extremely hard to detect it. <clears throat> yeah, because there's no pattern to this either. In other words, when we detect, it's it's, for it's example, just DNS. yeah, yeah but, but like for a back door, like when I compromise a system and I use DNS, a lot of times, uh, as you probably well know, Farrell, like one host will make 60 or 70 or 80% more DNS queries than any other host on the network because it's the back door channel and that's pretty easy to spot. Now, still, people don't spot that, but in your scenario, it's really just like one DNS request, dude, <laughs> that's going out. And like who is, unless there's some kind of signature, but you can obviously change your signature, right? Uh, and how you're dynamically generating whatever query they're running. So I, I think this is really hard to uh, detect and prevent, correct? That's that's very good assessment. That's very correct. I mean, and as you said, you can't even change the domain. Well, as a signature, you can say, okay, this is the default domain that, yeah. NetSparker makes requests, so you can edit your signatures. But that would be a signature for NetSparker. You know, that wouldn't catch anything else. Or even as a NetSparker user, you can actually change it. So mm -hmm. as you said, it's just one DNS request. There is no proper malicious. It's not trying to exfiltrate data. As you said, in, in backdoor kind of scenarios, like the, the purpose is the whole traffic goes to a DNS, which is extremely noisy and unusual for DNS traffic. You don't see that kind of, you know, DNS traffic from one server, especially if it peaks and all that kind of stuff. But in this case, it's just one DNS resolve. And like, you know, today's computer servers, web applications, they just DNS queries all day long, all day, you know, oh. all, all if, if you sit and watch, it's just so much noise in every single network today. I, I can't realistically think anyone would have noticed it. <clears throat> yeah, and most web applications typically do DNS lookups of some kind, um, and it is allowed in this scenario. So I don't, I don't see that being a, a, a roadblock. Um, so how are some of these um, exploits being verified? We kind of uh, touched on this uh, before, um, but uh, in terms of the different databases, like how other than the DNS response coming back, like what specific exploits are you trying uh, inside of there, especially when it comes to a, a SQL injection? Well, I know we talked about MySQL and you said some of the other ones were easy. So like, are there just like basically ping commands in some of these other databases that will generate a DNS query? Yeah, majority of the other databases have some sort of feature to connect a remote server. Right. The original feature, for example, to connect a remote database to uh, attach a table or export data or import data, something like that. I see. But okay. you don't want that, you know, you don't really care whether the function is right. successfully executed or not. All you do is, you know, we get the DNS and they just try to resolve and bam, you got your, you know, you got confirmation. But <clears throat> we actually go one step further than that because it's quite tricky. <clears throat> one DNS result doesn't mean you got a vulnerability. To give you an idea, you might make an attack and the DNS is resolved. That doesn't actually mean you got it right. That doesn't mean it's vulnerable just yet. Because if you have a system, let's say, sitting on the network and just watching all the domains, all the DNS, all, all, the, um, all the traffic, right? Or a better example, a web application might resolve the DNS for other purposes. So once the DNS is resolved, that doesn't mean database resolved it. Application layer might be resolved for other purposes, and that's not a vulnerability by itself. It's just resolved the DNS query. So what we do, 
just like you know, uh, when we report SQL injection cross-site scripting with other detections, we prove the vulnerability got executed and we give the user a proof. For example, in SQL injection, we don't just tell you uh, you got a SQL injection. NetSpiker will show you the name of the database. And you know, to prove that the vulnerability exists, it's not just it might be vulnerable, an attacker might, there is no might. It just says, okay, you are vulnerable to SQL injection and use your database name to prove that the vulnerability is real. So the very same idea in DNS queries, what we do, we actually execute code to populate a subdomain in that DNS query itself. To give you an idea, let's say a simple example, cross-site scripting. Cross-site scripting attack will include a piece of JavaScript that gets executed to produce a DNS query string. So once it's produced, you know the JavaScript got executed. So unless that JavaScript got executed, you won't get, a DN you won't get that DNS query. You, you will get something different. And then we know, okay, it's been resolved, but it's not actually vulnerable. It's something else. Something else is resolving for DNS queries. So this kind of improves the quality of detection significantly and also proves that the particular code is executed in the relevant subsystem, whether that subsystem is JavaScript, you know, in your browser effectively, or a SQL server, MySQL, a database server, or it can be a shell execution, you know, code evaluation in PHP environment or ASP.NET environment. As you can imagine, this goes on, it, it gets kind of complicated, mm -hmm. but that's effectively what we do. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like if you were to break in a house and do something, execute, not even just steal something, right? You're not stealing anything. You're executing a process and then verifying it once you have left the house, essentially. Um, which I think is really cool. Like you said, you can do this very safely uh, without <clears throat> really impacting anything else in a, a negative way. Um, <clears throat> my question is, in some of the customers that have started using this or helped you test this feature, what are some of the, like, the cool vulnerabilities that they've uh, found and how they integrated this into their, their web application scanning processes? Right. I, I mean, I personally haven't heard a lot uh, news yet. Also, you know, keep in mind it's a very new feature. We recently shipped it, so you know, um, I'm not quite sure. And but to be fair, majority of the customers don't come back to us and say we found this vulnerability. Oh, interesting. So don't hear that often. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I mean, there... they are happy. We find stuff, but they don't tell us the details because, well, as you know, being security business and all yeah. that, people like the tools, but they don't obviously want to expose how bad their security were. <laughs> yeah, I, I would encourage the community that if you use uh, tools uh, such as NetSparker to, to find vulnerabilities, uh, and you can get permission to talk about them in some way, shape, form, or fashion to share them with, uh, with Farrow and the team at NetSparker, because I think that's a really cool thing. So then in your lab, Farrow, what are some of the, uh, you mentioned WordPress, uh, you know, can you, do you have other examples of uh, some interesting scenarios and in how you tested this? We got tested it. I mean, part of our process of how we build stuff and how we say this is production ready is, you know, what I tell to our engineers, our security researchers, guys, we need real world examples. You know, don't come to me with, like, to be honest, like shitty edge cases. No. I want to see something real world, you know, something you have seen on a pen test, something that's happened in an open source application. So part of the process is actually revealing all public known vulnerabilities that's relevant to this, right? So 
do we have server-side request forgeries in lots of, you know, we do have it in lots of open source applications. Do we support it? How much can we support it with what we are developing? So we definitely go through the list. We go through even bug bounty reports. Yeah, so that's, that's a very good resource for us because then we see how you know, majority of the, not open source applications, but public, mostly commercial uh, websites have what kind of vulnerabilities and whether we already support it or whether the new engine supports those cases. And then we develop lots of test cases. And as I said, for example, I said MySQL, uh, Oracle, or then, then you have payloads for ASP.NET, PHP, Perl, Python, whatever. And then we got like tons of test cases and all the combinations. And unless we got a really, really good coverage in all of those, you know, we say, okay, this, this feature is just not good enough yet. We need to make it better. So once we hit at least something like 95% and the remaining 5% is like, this is an extreme edge case that, you know, in automated fashion, it's not reasonable to support this. Then we say, okay, ignore that. But remaining cases, we should support it. So rather than, you know, we find fences itself, we go this like really systematical approach of what, what is out there, create a matrix of all the possibilities, all the combinations, all the operating system, database systems, frameworks, what is supported, what's not supported, then create test cases and then work on that. And in that note, for example, we got about 2,500 test cases right now for all these individual vulnerabilities. And every time an engineer, a developer, changes a piece of code in NetSparker, we test NetSparker against all of them, all over again, just to be sure nothing is broken, everything still works, and all the new test cases are detected as well. So that's that's how we keep improving without breaking anything. So that's like you're, you've automated both regression and progression testing inside of your product. Oh yeah, we got we are extreme level of regression testing. I mean, in addition to do all the you know quality stuff like we got unit testing and so many other bits, but the regression testing system all custom built and supported by lots of security engineers that build test cases over the years. For example, when we first started, we have about seven, 750. Now we got about 2,500. Mm. And when a customer says, so when we see an open source application or when we see a bug report that talks about the vulnerability, and we look at it and we say, okay, NetSparker doesn't find it, but it should have. So let's create a test case. Let's improve the code to match this. But also let's ensure that all the things that we know before still works while detecting this one more thing. And generally, that's, you know, we see one more thing, but we implement it with, with like five, 10 cases, because even though that's how it happened or observed in one real world case, we you know, work on it and we figure out what are the other possibilities out there. If it's a SQL injection, Okay, what is the beginning of the syntax? What is the end of it? Is it integer? Is it string? Is it one group, two group, three groups? You know, whatever. And then you create all the combinations, all the test cases. Then the code should, you know, find every single one of them. And then we are like, okay, it's good. It's working. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic process. Thank you for those insights, uh, Farrell, into your, your process. I think that's really awesome. Um, and I've always loved working with the NetSparker tool uh, for just that reason, is the attention to detail and the, uh, 
like virtually no false positives. Uh, they're very difficult to come by because of that level of testing, um, which I think is great. Um, so anything else? Uh, so Nets, Parker, Hawk, um, just talk a little bit about how people can get it and how they have to deploy it and start using it. Right. Um, if you have the latest version of Nets, Parker, you have it. By default, it works with our DNS server, mm -hmm. which you can actually go to settings, and there's a Nets, Parker, Hawk section that you can even uh, test it, you know, to see from where you are sitting, everything works fine. That NetSparker can reach out to the DNS, uh, the SSL setting, everything works, etc. But also, we provide a Docker image. If you like, you can deploy your instance, and then you can configure NetSparker to use that instance, and then it's all your private. But you know, I need to make you know uh, mention this because it's quite important. Even though we have a default setup. We designed in a way which there is no knowledge from our end. So even, let's say, our DNS server got accessed or we access it or someone else or whatever, you know, obviously being a security company, we always think the worst case scenario, what happens if it got hacked kind of theory, mm -hmm. right? So we, we think about all the possibilities and all that. And we designed in a way where nothing in ClearText is stored. So everything is hash-based. So if you got the database, you know they're attacked, you have no idea or no storage of where they're coming from. So the client knows the keys, and they need to ask with the keys whether that a certain hash exists or not, but the hash itself can be resolved to effectively nothing. So it's just the client knows the attacks, and we just store some responses, but from the response, you cannot make any sense, or you cannot revert it, you know, reverse it back to the domain. So even if, we log into that, that server, look into the database and all that, we got no data. So we, we designed that way because, you know, obviously that's the right way to do it. Right, yeah, it, it's just a, a hash on your server that points back to something that the client knows, but you don't know what the client knows. Exactly, and client only checks whether that hash exists or not. Right. You know, if hash exists, that means attack was successful. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't exist, it wasn't successful. But by looking at the hash, or we were, you know, uh, you can't, yeah, I mean, even if you get the clear text of the hash, it's, I'm saying hash is just, you know, not necessarily a hash. It's just a random piece of string doesn't mean anything. Awesome. <clears throat> uh, anything else you want the listeners to know, uh, Ferro? This has been awesome and very educational for both, uh, for myself, which typically that means it's very educational for our listeners as well. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about <clears throat> this new feature in the product? Nothing in particular. I think, as I said, I'm really proud of what we did, and I really like the idea because, as a you know, as an expert tester, I know how painful to find this kind of vulnerabilities. And in real world, what happens is, even as a manual pen tester, you test stuff and you don't go that deep because it gets too complicated, too time consuming, et cetera, et cetera. So we kind of got these uh, to ourselves, a mission like we got your back, you know, you do your thing and I will take care of the automation. And this is, I think, the next step in that, like we got more coverage, more visibility and makes their life easier by getting deeper and ability to detect vulnerabilities that you might normally miss or kind of 
wouldn't bother to detect because right. the likelihood is very low and testing is extremely hard and time-consuming. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, waiting for a WordPress admin to log in, that could be hours or that could be weeks. And, you know, if we want to get into weeks, that's, uh, you know, probably way beyond the way uh, the amount of time you have for the test.